Hey everybody, welcome back to Bikes and Big Ideas on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm David Golay, the bike editor at Blister, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. All right, so my guest on the show this week is Martin Shepard, the general manager of Reynolds Technology, the famed British manufacturer of steel and titanium bike frame tubes. And we're here to talk today because Reynolds just released a super interesting study on their own environmental impact and the emissions produced by their various lines of tubing. So it's a really good chat because not only do we get into some pretty interesting details of where the emissions produced by Reynolds' own manufacturing comes from, but we get into it about things like recycling and how things that we think of as being recyclable aren't necessarily all created equal in terms of how well they can actually be recycled. And it's just a good look into how people think about where they are producing emissions and serves as a really good blueprint for how other companies can do the same and how we as consumers can all be better informed about what it is that we're buying and the effects of that. It's also a really good companion conversation to the great conversation that Jonathan had over on the main Blister podcast with Mario Molina, the director of Protect Our Winners, and their topic was primarily the historic new climate bill that just went through in the U.S. here. So check that out. We've got links in the show notes to both that episode and the Reynolds study, which will be pretty cool to follow along with as we go through this episode. And just in case you're worried that this is all climate stuff, there's also a bunch of interesting odds and ends that we get into on topics, including Spitfire airplanes, Jaguar race cars, and bulletproof cars, and a bunch of other random stuff. So this is a fun one. Check it out. And as always, let us know what you think in the comments. And with that, let's get right into my conversation with Martin. Well, Martin, great to have you on. Appreciate you taking the time. How are you today and where are you today? Okay, well, yeah, it's, it's great to be invited onto, onto your podcast. I'm sat at home at the moment in uh, rural Warwickshire in England. It's a, a nice sunny evening here, so uh, it's, been a, it's been a really quite pleasant day. Oh, glad to hear it. And yeah, certainly looks nice out <laughs> through the back window that I'm seeing behind you there. So our main goal today is just to have a bit of a chat about this environmental study that Reynolds has just put out, because I think it's certainly on the front of a lot of people's minds, just various ways that we as consumers and people going through the world can go about reducing our own individual footprints. And as people who are into riding bikes, there's certainly some thought to be had about just how the bikes and products that we're buying for them contribute to all of that. And you have taken a pretty interesting crack at just quantifying a lot of that information. So kind of just wanted to hear more about it and looking forward to chatting. So I guess just to kick it off a little bit, I would be curious just where the idea to go about doing this assessment came from and how you kicked it off in the first place. We originally uh, kicked it off because Joe McEwen from Starling Cycles, who I think you've had on your podcast earlier in the year, he approached us because Starling Cycles were doing their own environmental impact study. And at Reynolds, we've been kind of interested in this and this aspect of, of the business 
for quite a while. And Joe really gave us the prompt to actually do it properly and put some some information behind it, put some numbers behind it. I think we as Reynolds have have always been advocates that cycling is part of the solution to car to climate change. But um, equally, we know that there's stuff that we could do better. Um, and this gave us, as I say, the, the initiative to actually start and look at the business, see how how we generated our CO2, where it came from, and and just sort of quantify the stuff that, that we've been doing. Yeah, I think it's a really good thing for a lot more companies to be working on. And one of the things that Joe included in the Starling assessment that you alluded to was that he'd sort of spoken to a lot of Starling's key suppliers about doing something of their own along the same lines and essentially concluded that only a couple of his main suppliers had really Reynolds being one of the couple had done anything really very meaningful to sort this out. And so I think it's something that a lot of other companies could definitely be taking more seriously. And so I think one of the many things that I think is an important takeaway from this is just sort of pointing out that it's maybe not so horribly difficult to go about learning these things and there's some valuable stuff to be learned from doing it. And so to that end, I guess we should probably circle back a little bit and just fill people in on Reynolds and kind of your whole piece in the global cycling infrastructure and what the company does for folks who might not be super up on you guys. Yeah. So um, Reynolds, we've been going as a company for um, 124 years. So next year is our 125th anniversary. And for all of those years, we've been making steel tubes for the um, for predominantly the cycling industry. But in the past, we've also made tubes that went into the um, engine mounts for Spitfire aircraft, um, also went into parts of E-Type and D-Type Jaguar racing cars, um, Isle of Man TT race winning motorcycles had Reynolds frames. So um, as well as an incalculable number of Tour de France stage wins and outright wins. Um, Reynolds tubing was for very many years the, the premium steel uh, tube set to go to for, for cycling. Obviously, with the advent of aluminium and, and carbon fibre frames, sort of Reynolds kind of disappeared from frontline road cycling, you know, road racing. And we sort of found ourselves developing into different markets and now our, our tubes, both steel and steel, stainless steel and titanium, find their way into a lot of mountain bikes, a lot of gravel bikes, um, as well as what you might consider the traditional market for, for Reynolds, which is, which is road bikes. Um, so yeah, we have a, we have a, a sort of, we've carved out quite a nice niche for ourselves with our high strength steels, um, as well as the stainless and titanium. Yeah. And what's your role at Reynolds? Uh, I'm the general manager. Um, but, um, I've only been at Reynolds for a year. Uh, so, uh, in comparison to some of the people who've been there sort of man and boy, uh, for 40 odd years is that I'm, I'm still very much the new boy. 
But my background is in automotive design. I used to work for Jaguar Land Rover until about three years ago. Um, and so, as I say, I, I joined the company initially helping out um, on the design side for a couple of days a week. Um, two days a week somehow turned into three days a week, somehow turned into four days a week, somehow turned into you're now the general manager. So <laughs> it's been a bit of a, a bit of a steep learning curve at, at Reynolds, but um, but it's it's been really good fun as well. It's funny how that works out that you just things tend to spiral like that and one thing leads to another yeah. and, and here we are. But so to bring it back to the environmental study a little bit here, we've touched a little bit on the why, but I suppose I'd be curious to hear you go more in depth on what you really hoped to get out of doing this, because obviously there's things to be learned about where Reynolds' own environmental footprint is coming from and how you might go about improving certain things based on what you've learned from this. But what was really the primary motivation for going down this road and getting this study done? I, I think there were two. Probably two things that, that really um, motivated us. Um, one was that I think the Trek report that came out last year has kind of given the whole of the industry a bit of a wake-up call about what the cycle industry is and its and its footprint. And, and I think us as Reynolds, um, we kind of said off as part of that is to say, well, actually how do we quantify that it's easy to be quite complacent about you know well cycling is the right answer for urban mobility for decreasing car use for all of those kind of things it's easy to just be complacent and just say cycling is the right answer you know we're we're the good guys don't need to do any more work on it but i think we as a business actually wanted to say well you know, we've done some of the stuff. You know, we've we've put LED light bulbs in the factory. We've we've used recycled cardboard boxes um, to ship the parts in. The managing director drives an electric vehicle, but is that enough? Is that all we can do? And equally, where are the big items in our in our carbon footprint that we can go after? You know, because we can we can make further improvements. We can we can do better. Yeah, absolutely. It's certainly the kind of thing where like it's it's all well and good to be doing a lot of things well, but that doesn't mean that there's not other stuff that could be improved on top of that. And so just it's important to kind of understand where these things are coming from and what your impacts are in, in order to be able to take a stab at mitigating them. And sort of along those lines, I'd be curious to hear if obviously you've talked about Joe and Starling's own study and the, their prompt to you to kick this off. But across a broader slice of your customers, I get, you know, speaking beyond Starling, do you feel like there has been an increased interest in understanding this sort of stuff from the other people who you're supplying tubes to? Or was it motivated more just by you wanting to know sort of for your own volition and for doing this just because it was the right thing to do? Um, I I think it came, it, it's actually been something that's kind of been creeping up on us from a number of directions. So a number of our other customers have been sort of asking questions about where do your tubes come from? Um, how are they made? How much recycled material is within them? Those kind of questions. Um, and also we have this interesting relationship because although we don't directly make 
bicycles or bicycle frames is that our name is well known within the cycling industry. So the cycle buying public were also starting to ask similar questions of us that says, you know, okay, where does your material come from? Where does it go to? How are Reynolds doing their bit for the environment? Um, and so it's, it has been sort of creeping up on us from a number of directions. And, and again, I think one of the real benefits of this study is that we can now go back to whether it's our customers or whether it's bike buyers, and we can say, here's some numbers. It may influence your buying decision. It may not. Um, but here's some numbers to, to just have a look at. And, and, and we can also say, you know, off the back of this, we're going to take some action to make these numbers better. And so what more specifically did you hope to learn from doing the study, I guess? What were the main goals of it? To be honest, I don't think at the beginning we knew what the goals were going to be in terms of actions to take. Um, we really just wanted to dive into the numbers and see what came out. As I say, we, we've we've done some stuff along the way, which we kind of thought was heading in the right direction. And by kicking off this study, we knew that it was something, one, that we couldn't just put on a shelf and be virtuous and say, we've done a study, fair enough, you know, aren't we good guys? We wanted it to be a... a stimulation to take action as well as to actually quantify what we were doing yeah so so really it was it was it was a call to action as as well as a, a an interesting answer in itself right yeah i mean the study's not really worth much on its own it needs to be actionable and you need to then take the subsequent steps from there for it to be of any particular use but so I guess along those lines, then, I'd just be curious to hear what you did find when you went and did the study. What were the main things that you learned and what were the main takeaways? There's, there's several big takeaways for us that have, that have come out of this. Firstly, is that all of our steel, whether it's ferrous steel or stainless steel, is 100% recycled raw material. So no virgin iron ore goes into making our steel tubes. And we think that is a really big thing um, to say and to be able to say and say proudly that, that it's all recycled material that, that, that starts or say starts its journey, continues its journey. You know, it, it's, it's part, of, part of the cycle for, for steel is that it continues its journey um, by becoming a bicycle frame, ultimately. Um, I think one of the other big things that we found was that actually things like LED light bulbs in the factory really don't make a scrap of difference on the overall scale of things. One of the biggest, biggest factors for us has been the sh quite shocking amount of CO2 involved in air freighting stuff around the globe. We have a lot of customers out in Taiwan and during the COVID pandemic, we had to ship because of the, all of the problems that are quite well well known about, you know, shipping stuff around the world during the pandemic, all the container shortages and what have you, to meet delivery deadlines, we had to ship quite a lot of stuff by air, whether it was raw material coming into us or whether it was finished goods going out to Taiwan or North America or wherever. And that really is bad news. Um, <laughs> the, the, the CO2 in shipping, you know, a quarter of a tonne of, of steel tubes on a container boat is absolutely minimal. It's something like 
22 kilograms, I think we calculated to, to put it on a container because a ship like the size of, you know, those great big container ships, quarter of a ton of steel is a negligible part of that, of that cargo. Putting a quarter of a ton of steel on an aeroplane, that's quite a lot of the payload of, uh, of that aeroplane. And as a result is that the several tons of CO2 that go into shipping that to flying that to Taiwan is really quite a significant factor. And, and especially if we're shipping it into us as well via air, uh, because we need the material urgently. So that really has been the sort of the, the thing that has really given us the focus to start with. Um, and again, coming back to flying, one of the things we looked at the whole of the business end to end. So we looked at our raw material. We looked at our, what we do within the factory. We looked at what we do in our downstream logistics, but we also looked at what we do in the office. You know, us as the, uh, as the managers, as the, uh, as the um, account staff and what have you, what do we do? And we soon realized that, you know, changing the material, changing the paper in the photocopier to recycled paper didn't make a jot of difference when we fly out to trade shows in Taipei, in Colorado, in, you know, we're going to Philly Bike Expo in, in October. Just us flying around the world was the same amount of CO2 as we spent on gas to heat the factory for the whole year. So, you know, these are really big numbers. Um, and I think the scale of them for us as the business really did shock us. And the other thing is that's something that is actually really within our control. Both parts of it is that we can plan better in the factory so that we order parts more, we order raw material earlier so that it can come on a boat. We can work with our customers better to production schedule stuff so that we can ship it out on a boat. And equally, when it comes to going to trade shows or going to meet customers, you know, we can meet customers via the internet. And when we go to trade shows, we can just send like the bare minimum number of people, or we can use our local distributors to help out. So we only fly the minimum number of people out there. It's not like we send, it's not like we fly dozens of people around the world. I'd like to point out there's, there's only ever four or five of us uh, who could possibly go. So, but even, you know, reducing the number from three people flying to two has a significant effect on the whole amount of CO2 that, that we're responsible for. Yeah. And I think the note on air freight especially is one that a lot of people are figuring out of late. And we've had a number of conversations on here where that's come up that it's just apparent that doing better at planning and being able to use more sea freight whenever possible goes a really long way on that front. And I think well, something else that I've heard from a couple of folks is just that the various well-known supply chain headaches that have resulted from the COVID pandemic that we don't need to rehash too much more, but have sort of given the bike industry a bit of a shock in that it has gotten folks who are used to being able to order things on very short notice, just more accustomed to doing better planning and in a lot of ways that 
could help in the longer term once things get to some closer semblance of normal that the things that we've learned from just having to manage the fact that you can't get a derailleur for 400 days or whatever it might be, carry that over to doing shipping better and start sending stuff by Seymour and really cutting down a whole lot in that way. Uh, very much so. You know, we, we deal with a lot of bike companies who are saying that, um, you know, they're having to place provisional schedules for 2024, which seems absolutely outrageous for for companies. Um, you know, we, we don't deal with, you know, companies the size of, of Trek or Giant or whatever. Um, we're dealing with the little guys and, um, you know, and they, they find it really difficult. Um, but the, the other thing that was... a apparently is obviously the figures that we were using were for 2021 which was during the you know various lockdowns in the pandemic and the all of the problems that were being seen in the ports in you know in china and in taipei and um wherever else um meant that the, and the escalating costs of shipping things by sea and the unreliability of shipping things by sea meant that you know, to be blunt, it was far more convenient to stick it on an aeroplane. Um, there was not a lot of cost difference and it was a darn sight more reliable. And a lot of, uh, I think a lot of companies found that. But at what price to the planet as we now, you know, now that we've done the numbers, it, it's very much on our conscience in the in the office when we, we're sat in the office talking about, you know, the next order of titanium or whatever that we need to get from China. Um, we have a very long chat about how we can make sure that it comes by sea and we don't have to resort to to putting it on an aeroplane. Yeah, I think it's a good thing to be thinking through and something that a lot more folks ought to be doing. So good on you for that. To dig into the specifics of the results a little bit more, though. So you've broken down them down by the sort of three main product types. So ferrous steels, regular steel as to say, titanium and stainless steel. And we'll put a link to the study in the show notes. So if people want to follow along with this bit or just read it on their own time, you can check that out. But to summarize quickly, the essentially found that the emissions for making a ferrous steel tube are quite a lot lower than either titanium or stainless, which are much closer to each other in terms of total output. But the Stainless actually had the most total emissions of the three. And so and there's also just a nice breakdown of where each of those bits of emissions are coming from for each type of tubing. And they don't sort of scale the same for all three of them. It's the where the emissions are coming from are quite different for each of the three. And so I think a little bit on the differences there is pretty interesting. And off the bat, so the bit devoted to raw material for the ferrous steel is a very small slice of the sliver, and it's significant, but a minority for the stainless tube, and then it is the significant majority of the total emissions for a titanium one. And I'm curious, do you have, I guess, kind of clarity on where those differences are coming from, particularly given that you mentioned that both your ferrous steel and your stainless steel are all fully recycled materials. So what's driving that difference? And then what about the titanium part of the equation? The ferrous steel is is quite a straightforward thing. You know, it's quite an easy stuff. Um, it, 
the the source material you know is just kind of regular scrap steel that goes in and is melted down the alloying elements are put in and out of the other end comes um, our raw material it's it's a relatively simple straightforward process and so the result of which is is that there's not a lot of extra processing that goes on to it um, not a lot of um, um, additional work has to go into that to turn it into um, our 631 or um, our chromoly 500 series um, steel so that's it, that's kind of business as usual for most of the steel plants um, that we deal with our stainless steels are very specialized again we we don't use kind of regular stainless steel our 953 for example is a grade that is used for making in addition to making fantastic steel bike tubes it is used for making um bulletproof protection for armored cars um you know so it's 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 some pretty specialized stuff they tend to run it in very small batches and the result of which is is that it's raw material has a lot more processing that goes into it. So that's why there's a big step up between ferrous steel and stainless steel. Um, it's just a lot more processing at the steel plant to actually come up with these very, very specialized grades um, that we use. The titanium is, is a different story in itself. Titanium has not been used widely, even in aerospace, which is where, where most of the demand for titanium comes from has not been used that widely for very long. So there is not an established recycling route for titanium. So, and this is where it will get a bit anoraki, I'm afraid, a bit of, a, a bit sort of into the weeds, really. Um, a lot of the titanium stuff that is claimed to be recycled is actually um, aviation industry swarf. So the machining leftovers when they're making an engine casing or making a turbine blade or whatever it's the stuff that's left over so it's not really what you would call recycled it's just reused so it's melted back into another block of titanium and so we for the because this is really difficult to quantify what we have taken for um, the titanium in our study is we have assumed it's all raw material because saying that this swarf is is recycled feels a bit kind of um i don't know it would feel a bit like greenwashing and we really didn't want to greenwash this report so the titanium is probably a worst case scenario because the aviation industry does create an awful lots of an awful lot of scrap titanium when it's when it's making parts and the result of which is is that a lot of it gets reused uh, and remelted but for us to be you know transparent and present a worst case scenario we decided that we would actually call it virgin material it might be a better answer in reality but you know it, it's, it's better to be to be open and honest and upfront about about what our assumptions are yeah definitely and I think it's just a really good note about recycling. And I think a lot of people sort of think of it as a little bit of a binary where a thing is either recycled or it's not. But the sort of differences in 
how recyclable different materials are and how widely it is actually done effectively varies hugely. And so, you know, you have things like, as you've touched on, regular steel, very well-established process that's done pretty efficiently all over the place, very reliably. And then there's a lot of stuff like plastics, which are often technically recyclable, but doesn't necessarily happen nearly as widely as it maybe could, or things like the just it being a more energy intensive and inefficient process to do so. And so it's not as if all recycling is necessarily created equal on that front, to think is a key thing to take away. It's one of my little pet anecdotes is that we, we, we as a human race, ever since we have created iron back in, you know, several thousand years BC, have been recycling iron and steel. You know, there, there's nothing to say that part of the tube set on my um, on my steel framed bike wasn't at some point a Roman soldier's sword. It's pretty far fetched, I'll grant you, but but it, it was more likely to have been a baked bean tin or um, you know part of a car or something. But there's nothing to say that it wasn't um, several you know hundred years ago. wasn't um, uh, say it wasn't a Roman soldier's sword. It's um, we are very good at recycling steel. You know, you can you you can take a you can take your old bike frame down to the scrapyard, down to the junkyard, and someone will take it off your hands and it will get re reprocessed. It, it has a value, and I think one of the key things about recycling steel is that it retains its mechanical properties each time it's recycled. It doesn't de get degraded like a lot of plastics do. It retains that that mechanical strength, it can be re-alloyed, it can be turned back into something of equal use to what it was before. Yeah, that's another really good note that I wanted to hit on. Again, that steel, it, you, it's not like you're making a lesser product for having it be recycled material. It's something where you can really, truly recycle it and have it good as new, the same or as a virgin material would be. So... Another thing I'm curious to hear a bit about in terms of the breakdown of the different materials is that you have a segment labeled inbound logistics, which is a fairly negligible slice of both the ferrous steel and titanium, but is a very large percentage of the stainless steel total emissions. And so I guess one would be curious for you just to go into a bit more detail on what that actually means and where that's all coming from on the stainless side when it's not particularly a significant factor on the other two. Okay, well, it, it, it's an interesting it, it is an interesting little story on itself is that our our ferrous steel comes predominantly from um, from Taiwan or from uh, Germany. The majority of the stuff we process in our uh, in our factory in Birmingham is from Germany, and that comes to us um, by road. So it comes on a on a truck. And again, relatively low low emissions way of, of getting the stuff to us. The titanium, up until when President Putin invaded Ukraine, used to come to us via rail from China. We had a there's a a a very long um, logistics chain from from China through to to Britain via um, predominantly via Russia. Um, and so again, during 2021. All of our titanium came via rail um, uh, from China, which again is a very low emissions route. It's, you know, the trains are mostly electric. 
Um, it's um, it's quite an efficient way of moving a lot of stuff. Um, so the inbound logistics, even from China for the titanium, is is pretty good. The stainless steel, however, was a victim of of the of the pandemic, and as we've talked about um, talked about earlier, is that we don't use an awful lot of stainless steel, um, and the result of which was we ended up bringing a lot of our stainless steel in via air in relatively small batches during the pandemic, just because we needed little bits at a time. And as I say, the most cost-effective and time-effective route was to put it on an aeroplane. Now we know why that is uh, why that wasn't necessarily a good idea. Um, and in the future, we won't be. In fact, there's some stainless steel due to leave the mill in, in Taiwan, I think in about middle of September, and that will be coming on a boat. Um, so, you know, there's a positive decision now that we know the effect that that stainless steel will be coming on a boat, not in an aeroplane. And so when, yeah, so, so when we redo the figures, those numbers for inbound logistics will hopefully drop like a stone and you know it will be that will split the difference between the titanium and the and the ferrous steel rather than rather than standing out on its own as the uh, uh, as the highest um, co2 that makes a lot of sense and is a pretty nice segue into what i was going to ask next which is apart from the stuff we've already talked about in terms of avoiding air freight where possible and trying to do more sea and rail i suppose what are kind of the main next steps that reynolds really sees as being viable things for you to do in order to act on this study and work on chipping away at the various emissions that you've identified in it you know well, I, as I, say, I i think we've talked to talked a lot about uh, a lot about air freights um but there are other things that we can do within within the factory one of the things that we we have is that our factory is 50, 60 years old. Um, it's not very well insulated. We don't have double glazing on the windows. Um, we don't have much in the way of insulation in the um, in the ceilings, or um, and we have big roller shutter doors and things that uh, that um, let a lot of heat out in the winter when we open them. Um, and so we're going to start exploring ways that we can start to improve the insulation of the factory. Um, and hopefully it will also make the office a bit warmer in the winter. Um, <laughs> but but, but that's a side benefit, maybe. That's been one of the things that has, has kind of prompted us. And, and, and thankfully, here in the UK, is that our local councils and things are able to offer, you know, some support to small businesses with insulating factories and improving energy efficiency. So... With a bit of luck as well, we can get some support from from our local authorities to to make it that bit more cost effective for us. Yeah, I think that's all good stuff that we should be all striving towards. And on that note, what advice would you have for some other company who some employee there might be listening to this and thinking, I'd like to do a study of our own business, whatever it might be? how where would you start how would you tell them kind of to how to get a leg up on kicking something like this off it feels quite daunting to start and i think what i would i would actually say is 
just kind of start to dive in and start to look at stuff and look at look at the end to end of the business so look at where everything starts its life what value you add to it within your own business and then what you do to it at the end where you how you get it to your customer and just break it down into into little chunks start to look at things and start to quantify things and then you'll start to build up a picture of what's important what's not important for us that was um, that was really just how we do it. it was just to kind of leap in and just start to quantify everything in the chain start to get some numbers um, but equally I think one of the things that we found quite frustrating was just getting to proper numbers and you know we, we have quoted 17.2 kilograms for a frame set of um, ferrous steel I know the one thing I know about that number is that it's wrong <laughs> because some of the data that we were having to pull in was quite sketchy um, even you know well, I we reached out to people like Warwick University to try and help us get good numbers behind stuff and the people we were talking to at Warwick University were saying well, actually, these numbers are not very well developed or they're very generic or they're very, um, you know, they're not really specific for your business. So you'll just kind of have to take them with a pinch of salt. Um, and so it's easy to get despondent and go, well, actually, these numbers are a load of rubbish. Um, but in reality is that they've given us something to work off going forward. So when some new numbers become available, and I'll, I'll, the number I'll quote for you is on heat treatment, um, there's very little information around either from companies that do heat treatment or from the you know, universities doing the research into carbon footprinting. All of that work is yet to be done, um, either academically or commercially. And the result of which is, is that the heat treatment number I know is, I'm not very confident in it. Um, I might have, I might be lucky and it might be spot on, but I, 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 I really doubt it. So, you know, there could, that 17.2 kilograms might actually be nearer 20, it might be nearer 15. But what it gives us is it gives us a set of numbers to go and work with. And we know that, and I keep coming back to air freight just because it's, it's, the, it's the big one. We know that that's the big one to go after. Um, you know, that skews the numbers immensely. And if you can get rid of that, then all of the numbers come down. So, yeah, if, if I was in another company looking at this and I'd say, well, I'm going to come up with some numbers that are a bit rough and a bit ready. You know what? Just go for it. And they're better than nothing. One of the things I was pointed to by Warwick University is the Volvo offshoot Polestar have done a really, really detailed study on their cars. And they've kind of set for me the benchmark of what you do with this. They're on about sort of version three, version four of their report. And each new version has got, oh, well, we found a bit better material for brake pads or we found a bit better material a bit better information for what the co2 impact is of making a seat or making a headlamp or whatever or about what goes into their batteries or you know whatever 
and they keep iterating it and keep refining it and getting numbers better and better. And so they've kind of set for me um, the benchmark of, of what you should do should do with these. You know, it shouldn't just sit on the shelf as a study. It should be a it should be a living document. Yeah, I think there are a couple of really important takeaways from that bit. Yeah, first one being that sort of like you said, it doesn't exactly matter precisely what the numbers are. The key thing is understanding in broader strokes where the bigger pieces of improvement to be had are. And so if the actual number for a ferrous steel frame is 18 and a half kilograms rather than the 17.2 you put in the study, kind of whatever, it doesn't particularly matter. It's the fact that you have this understanding of, at least generally speaking, where the emissions are coming from. And with that, you can sort of make some pretty good understandings of kind of where you could potentially improve things versus where there just isn't that much sort of headroom to chip away at it. And that's immensely helpful, even if the numbers themselves aren't precisely correct. And that helps make the whole prospect of going about something like this less daunting. You don't have to nail it. You just need to come up with a decent understanding out of it. And then, like you said, you have to actually act on that understanding rather than going, well, now we know and forgetting about it. Yeah. And I think one of the other things from, from Reynolds' perspective um, is we shouldn't beat ourselves up too badly about 17.2 kilograms because I did a little bit of maths based on the fuel economy of an SUV and 17.2 kilograms gets an, a typical SUV about 32 miles uh, down the road. And again, to put some context on that, it, from where I'm, I am in, in Warwick, Warwickshire is our nearest sort of trail centre is is Cannock, which is 50 miles away. Um, so it's a round trip of 100 miles. So if I go to Cannock for one day's mountain biking, um, that's a 100 mile round trip. That's the same CO2 as Reynolds making three bike frames. And so we shouldn't get too het up about it being again whether it's 17.2 or 18.4 or whatever it's just us driving to the trail center is a far worse thing <laughs> that's a good note too and i guess i i know this wasn't your study and the reynolds one touches on sort of your three materials that you're most familiar with and that you actually sell but the Starling study was focused more around, well, one, understanding their own footprint from the steel frames that they make, and then also attempting to compare the emissions from a carbon frame. And their kind of rough estimate was that for a typical thermoset carbon frame, the emissions from one of those was something like 16 times that of a steel frame. And that wasn't even yet taking into account the fact that the steel frame is extremely recyclable once it reaches end of life, whereas the carbon one is not really at all. And then just curious kind of if you have any plans to attempt to branch out a little bit and sort of attempt to compare the Reynolds numbers to the frames that might be getting made out of other materials or are you kind of 
mostly focused on looking inward with this and just doing what you can to work with what you've got and what materials you actually sell. Yeah, it's an interesting one there. And I think it would be tempting to have a go at it. But I think the reality is, is that knowing what we know about things like the supply chain logistics, about the peculiarities of our factory versus the peculiarities of a carbon fiber factory, I don't think we want to go there because I I know there's a big enough margin of error on the stuff that I do know about without then having a go at trying to do something that we really don't know anything about. Um, and equally, I'll put my hands up and say, you know, I own carbon fiber bikes. Um, I'm, and it's a personal choice for every rider. I'm not buying or selling. All I'm saying is, here are our numbers. It's information to educate you. Um, I'm not trying to. I'm not trying to diss aluminium. I'm not trying to diss carbon fiber. Um, all I'm saying is, here's Reynolds numbers. Be educated by it, and it might it might just help you when you're making a decision about about what is the next bike that you buy. Yeah, that is certainly fair enough, and I'm not trying to cast any stones here either. Just. Uh... Like you said, just good to have this information out there and for people to make an informed decision, whatever that decision might end up being ultimately. So appreciate you putting this out there and for taking the time to chat about it. It's been quite an interesting one. But just before we wrap up, we do tend to ask a final question of our guests, which is if they happen to have a big idea to share. And granted, the whole commissioning of the study was a pretty big idea in and of itself. But do you have another one for us? One of the things that's prompted me is this 32 miles thing about the about the steel frame. And uh, we as cyclists, whether you're a road cyclist going to a sportive or whether you're a mountain biker going to the trail park, is that we drive places. Um, and particularly um, around by us in Warwickshire, we don't have much in the way of great trail centres. But one of the things that uh, is happening just down the road in, in Leamington Spa is that an old golf course is being turned into a trail centre. And I think that's a really good reuse of, well, it's a re really good reuse of a golf course, whether people use it or not, but um, it's a really good reuse of a piece of redundant land. And the reality is, I think you can squeeze, you know, a, a blue trail with a few bits of, maybe a few bits of red off the side of it to make it interesting. You could squeeze that into almost any municipal park across the world. And, and if that reduced the number of people who had to drive to do some interesting mountain biking, then I'm up for municipal bike parks. You know, just convert a couple of soccer pitches, convert whatever uh, into a little trail park and just get people riding their bikes in a safe environment um, and maybe it, uh, it stops a few trips out in the cars to, uh, to help, help make cycling that bit more environmentally, environmentally friendly. I think that's a great note and anything we can do to cut down on driving to go ride is, is great. So all for more trails, all for that. And Martin, appreciate you taking the time to chat. This has been a lot of fun and I think it's had a lot of really good information in it. So we appreciate it. 
No, well, thanks very much. It's been it's been a pleasure to share the information with you, and uh, and I really look forward to hearing this in the future. That's it for this edition of Bikes and Big Ideas. And as always, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating review in Apple Podcasts to help keep the show going and growing. I also want to say thanks to Martin for the conversation, thanks to Taylor Ahern for producing the episode, and thanks to you for listening. From all of us at Blister, please take good care of yourself and everybody else, and we'll talk to you again next week. Bye, everybody.